0: Lord, we thank you for this space. Uh, We thank you for every single person who walked in here tonight. Um, You know their story. You know what's on their heart. You know why they felt compelled to come to church tonight, Lord. And I pray that as we enter this series, these next four weeks, that you allow these tough subjects, Lord, to to really work on our hearts, to challenge us, to shape us, to grow us. I pray that no one here tonight leaves unchanged. Please speak whatever you want to say. Let me be your vessel, let me be whatever you need me to be so that your words flow through me and I don't distract anyone. Um, (laughs) And in your name we pray, amen. All right, so for for the people here who went to church as a kid, and you went to kids' church, right, for our church kids. Um, I'm going to bring us all back to Sunday school real quick. And even for those people who did not go to church, this story also resonates because it's used in business practices now. It's so famous. Um, But y'all remember the story of David and Goliath? Rings a bell, right? So what happens? What happens in this story? A small boy, approximately 17 years old, ends up defeating a giant, a giant man. And the crowds cheer so loudly for him. We are so pumped for David. We leave that story feeling awesome and high and happy and really you know, pushing for the underdog. And the thing is, that's not where the story ends. And the rest of the story is actually much more relatable than somebody fighting a giant and winning. But we don't read that part because it probably impacts us too much. I don't know about you, but I didn't read I didn't learn past that in Sunday school. I just learned the triumphant story, and that was it. The latter half of that story in 1 Samuel is all about a silent sermon that Saul, the first king of Israel, preached to himself. Uh, Just a little background before we dive in. If you're looking in your Bible, this story is found in 1 Samuel, and as the Old Testament starts pushing us through towards the New Testament, this is where we start to see that Israel is now ruled by kings. So we went from Israel being enslaved, Israel walking, Israelites walking through the, the wilderness with Moses for 40 years, then they wanted judges, they got, God gave them judges, and now they want kings, and God's like, okay, fine, you get kings. And Samuel was the last judge then to appoint the first king, who is Saul. So Saul is here, and the latter half of the story really focuses on him and his issues. He preached to himself a silent sermon of destruction. And so over the the next four weeks, we're going to look at various different silent sermons that we preach to ourselves and offer up ways to change our personal narrative before they become destructive for us. The reason that we dedicated, or are dedicating, four weeks to this is because without a doubt, it's, it's not the sermons that you hear at this church or any church that will change your life. It is the sermon that you preach to yourself as you leave here, as you go on with your week. That's the sermon that's going to change your life. Nothing that we say up here. Only what you repeat to yourself. Those sermons have the most power over us. And so these next few weeks, we're going to speak to a few of them that impact, I think, all or most of us and try to course correct together, starting today. And you know, sometimes there are sermons that you can appreciate, but they don't really identify with you. Tonight is not one of those sermons. Everyone can identify with what we're going to talk about tonight. It impacts all of us, regardless of where you are in life. So, taking a look back at what happened with David and Saul. Now, I love being able to stand up here and read straight from the Bible. I would read an entire chapter for all of you, but the thing is, it's too long and you'd be here all night. So we're going to do a Cliff Notes version and I'm hoping that I can, my storytelling will be good enough that you can follow along, uh, because it's just too long. But I do encourage you to go to 1 Samuel and read it for yourself. It's a wild, bizarre story. And um, yeah, it's definitely worth reading. But Cliff Notes tonight. So the story starts with this young boy David, 17, who's about to fight Goliath. Now, during this time, the Israelites, they're gaining power, and power in that time meant land. And so they're trying to get more land from different tribes and making sure that they own it and God's people own it. And the Philistines are basically their biggest rival. And this is where this giant Goliath comes from. And so we've got David, who is a very, very upright citizen. God has already decided that he's going to be the next king, right, at 17. He actually appoints him before Saul is taken down. And the reason that he needs to appoint him before Saul is taken down is because Saul had a lot of promise, but he didn't trust God. And so God removed favor from him. And so we have David walking into this scene. They're about to go to battle. So the Israelites are trying to get more land. They're about to go to battle. And David's like, put me in, coach. I can do this. This is what he says to Saul. And Saul's like, no, you're a child. You can't do this. He goes, no, 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 I can He's like, my dad, whenever we have sheep that go missing or something happens, I'm the one who fights off the big animal. I kill them. And he goes, oh, okay, well, let's see what you got. And Saul even tries to put his, like, weaponry and battle gear on him, but it's too big because David is too small, and so he essentially goes into battle with what I'm wearing right now. And he walks up, and that's the famous story where he has a slingshot, and he hits Goliath square in the forehead, and he's down. He has killed the giant, and then they kill, like, thousands of other people along with him. It's a lot, yeah. Um, and Saul is actually very pleased with this. He's pleased that David has killed these people and has, was able to defeat Goliath. Super pumped about it. But... But then, even though he's pleased, even though he says, you're going to stay with me, I'm going to give you a high rank in the army. Everything changes when we see this. This next verse. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And they danced and they sang, Saul has slain thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, and I prefer this version. Saul was very angry, this saying did not please him. That's what I'm gonna say when I don't like things anymore. It doesn't please me. Um, Didn't please him. That's where everything changed, right here. Everything changed in this story. The entire trajectory is different now. Because they came back and said, Oh my God, Saul, you're amazing. You killed a few thousand. But David, holy cow, who is this kid? 10,000? What? And Saul's like, "Mm, What? Excuse me? You see, it was okay when David was doing great, but still under Saul's thumb. But now he has 10,000 in comparison to his mere thousands. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Not okay for him. And this begins his downward spiral. And we watch it all happen. You see, even though Saul has failed as a leader in God's eyes, he's still not giving up. He still thinks that it's his to own. And this is where he decides that David must not just be rid of, he needs to be destroyed. That's the only answer in Saul's mind. David must be destroyed. And yes, if you're tracking this, amount of rage makes absolutely no sense. Um, Why? Why would he be that angry with him? He's already dethroned. Saul, multiple times in this book, Saul tries to throw spears at David, like just as he's walking. Uh, I don't know how this works, uh, but he always misses him. I don't know if it's on the way to the bathroom or what's happening. He's just launching things at David, and David is missing them because David has favor from God. So he can't kill him yet. He's trying so hard. He even tried to trick him into going to battle. So he would say... Uh, you know, you can marry my daughter if you go battle these people, thinking that the people he was going to battle were going to kill David. And no, David destroyed everybody. He even gave him his other daughter, who he thought was going to drive him insane. Didn't happen. Guess they worked out really well. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> even so, when David was married to that second daughter, Saul came to try to kill him again. And this is in the Bible, I swear. They put an idol in David's bed and then they put goat hair over the idol to make it look like David was sleeping. (laughs) So when they came, they just saw this and got really mad and David was long gone. All these people protecting him. And Saul continuously trying to get him. So this entire time David's running for his life, he really doesn't know why he has to run from Saul or what he actually did. And this cat and mouse game continues for quite some time, but he continues to escape because he has favor from the Lord. And then something really interesting happens when they go out to fight for what seems like the 500th time in this book. Uh, David and his men, they hide in a cave. And then Saul comes up because he's tracking David. He wants to kill David. And But he's not fast enough, he's not smart enough, he doesn't have the favor. And so he goes to the same cave where they're hiding, and Saul actually goes to use the bathroom in the cave. And this is when David's men are like, okay, now's your time, go kill him. And f- from all perspectives, looking at the situation at this point, it would make sense, right? Especially in the Bible, it's so brutal, like for David to go kill Saul. But what does David do? He walks up behind him most likely peeing hopefully and he snaps a little piece of his garment that's all he does and then he backtracks and then he follows Saul outside of the cave and he goes Saul and Saul sees him couldn't believe that he's staring at David this this man he's been looking for and and David goes you know I could have killed you like here's my proof I was this close to you and I didn't do it And at that point, Saul starts weeping, and he goes, you are more righteous than I am. And they form this truce at that moment, and then David's like, cool, cool, this is great. And then a few chapters later, you see Saul, because he loses his mind all the time, go back for David, and David's like, hey, we talked about this. (laughs) And Saul's like, right, sorry, 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 sorry. And the end of this is very tragic for Saul because he's in another battle, and he ends up killing himself after he finds out that his sons have been murdered in the battle. That was it for him. And then we see 2 Samuel start with David being appointed the king. So clearly, Saul has some problems, and his number one problem in his mind is David. The heart, though, of the entire story, of his entire rage, was that he was jealous and envious of David. That's it. The entire story can be summed up like that. And we here have the pleasure of reading it from not being in that situation, from all of what we know, right? And so we can look at this and be like, wow, this is kind of silly. Why would he go to these extremes? For what? He was already going to be stepping down. Just think what they could have accomplished if Saul wasn't constantly chasing him and David wasn't constantly running for his life. Perhaps if Saul was sitting with us this evening, looking back on the story, he might go, you know, yeah, I could see where I overreacted a little bit. But only hindsight gives you that. That's it. In the moment, he was completely justified in his mind for what he was doing. Number one, I'm going for David. He's the problem. He couldn't see anything else. He needed to be the best, not David. Doesn't that sound familiar? (laughs) And there are plenty of other stories in Scripture that are caused by envy and jealousy. We start with envy. Eve, Eve wanted to know everything that God knew. We go into Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel because God accepted his sacrifice and not his, his brother's sacrifice and not his. Rachel and Leah, one could have a baby, one couldn't. Super upset. Esau and Jacob, one is upset because they got the blessing from the father. Envious. And even in the New Testament, people were envious of Jesus, that's why he was arrested. So the Bible is littered with stories of envy and jealousy, but what do we mean when we say those words? So those definitions are up there for a purpose because a lot of times within our culture, these words are used, at least in America, interchangeably. Um, And I think for people who are not followers of Jesus, that's okay. And I say that because jealousy has something biblical within it in the sense that we serve a jealous God and we are created in that God's image. We are jealous people. It's inherent within us. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. It just needs to be controlled. Because as we can see here, The definition of jealousy is the fear that something which we possess will be taken away by another person. So God's jealousy is that our love was meant for him. That's why we see jealousy usually connected with a romantic relationship. You make a covenant with that person. Your love is supposed to be with that person only. And so jealousy arises when that person fears that it's going elsewhere and wants to bring it back. So controlled jealousy is okay. You have to keep it in check though. Now, envy, on the other hand, is to want something which belongs to someone else. And that could be a material thing, a characteristic. It could also technically be a person if you don't have a relationship with that other person. Um, But envy, as one pastor put it, is the number one thing that no one has. No one gets that? Oh my God, wake up everybody. Um, But it's true. We all suffer from it and we can't grab it. Because as long as we're envious of something, that means we don't have it. And jealousy, like, as long as it's controlled, it's okay because we are jealous people. We are made in his image. That's just how it goes. And a good way to remember the difference, for me at least, is that, between jealousy and envy, is that jealousy requires three people and envy requires only two. So you need a third person to intercept your relationship in order for jealousy to happen because that other person's love is supposed to be with you and you alone. You're jealous for that person. Envy just requires you and anything else, anything else somebody has, that's it. You want it because you don't have it and you think you should. So what do these two things do to us? Well, and you'll hear me say from now on extreme jealousy because that's the part that gets us out of control. God doesn't, have to, doesn't suffer from that because he's perfect. We do because we're not. And we're these humans who take something and that is meant for good and turn it into something else. So extreme jealousy and envy. First parade around is our friends. Or even our judges, right? Making sure that we get the right verdict. <laughs> uh, because it's right. We're right. We should be doing this. And in particular with envy, it's one of the seven deadly sins, right? It's the one that all of us suffer from, but it's also the least fun out of all of them. I mean, greed, lust, gluttony, laziness, they all come with a little bit of fun before the destruction happens. Right? (laughs) But, Calvin, I see that, yeah. But... But we all choose envy. Not everybody suffers from laziness. Not everybody suffers from greed. We all suffer from envy in some way. And we step right into it knowing that there's zero benefit, only pain. It's a lose-lose situation. And Scripture warns us about this. Exodus 20:17: Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's one of our Ten Commandments this was this was something to warn us. Proverbs 14:30 A heart at peace gives life to the body but envy rots the bones. James 3:14 through 16 But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts and do not do not boast about it or deny the truth such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly unspiritual demonic for where you have envy and selfish ambition there you find disorder and every evil practice. And then this one really gets me from Paul. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? He's trying to tell these people that they're a royal priesthood and they just want to fight with each other. So what do they do to us? They destroy us completely, just like they did Saul. Saul was both extremely jealous and envious of David. He was jealous because David had earned the affection from the Israelites that he thought belonged to him. And he was envious because David was so young, and yet somehow he was already so skilled and so favored and so smart. So left unchecked, both won't stop until they completely destroy us. So how do we fix this? How do we course correct this situation? We lean in. That's how we fix it. And you know why? Because our instinct is to pull away and to retreat. And I hate to say this, but sometimes our instincts aren't right, because our instinct is to protect us, is to keep us here. And we know that when we step into that space, it's going to be difficult before it gets better. So we don't want to do it. We'd rather protect, save face, whatever you want to call it, Survive. (laughs) It drives us, when we don't do it, it drives us deeper and deeper into the prison of extreme jealousy and envy, a place, a prison in which we have put ourselves in completely. No one else holds the key to that but us. And sometimes doing something counterintuitive is a practice that will save us. For instance, has anyone ever been glacier hiking? Super random question, I know. Hey, there we go. Um, So I've been once, and walking on ice, obviously not a good idea in general, but I did it. And when you do it, you have these shoes on with spikes, these giant spikes. And you know when you walk down a hill in the forest, you kind of lean back because you don't want your body weight to make you tumble down? At least that's what my brain does. Well, when you go glacier hiking, you have to do the opposite. So I'm looking at something terrifying, and I'm supposed to go forward into it. Because as I go forward, I step really, really deeply into the ice, and I get saved because these spikes. When you lean back, they don't go all the way in, and then you might fall. Took me a few lessons. Um, it was a few long, few hours. Um, but that's what you have to do in order to save yourself. You lean into something that is super duper uncomfortable and makes you feel unsafe. So, this is how we counterintuitively course correct we need to control jealousy and overcome envy. It's the only way we do it. And we control jealousy with communication, and we overcome envy with admiration. Sucks, right? Yeah. That's what we gotta do. You see, we need to lean in, not just to course correct, but to also understand our feelings of extreme jealousy and envy should be a trigger to us. I think often those feelings are actually really us saying, I want in, I want to belong to that too. I think we should lean into those thoughts and figure out what they're trying to tell us because we need to be honest with ourselves. Do we feel envious because you know that you're called to do something and the other person is brave enough to step in and you're too scared to step into the ring? If fear is something that plagues you, it's a topic that we're going to talk about, that Pastor Jess is going to take on within this series. Is that where your envy is coming from? Or perhaps you see somebody and immediately your self-worth just drops. If that's the case, then you need to go back to the source. So many people are trying to find their self-worth in things that are not God, and it'll never work. It'll always fail. Retreating, as much as we want to do, it only makes it grow. It only makes the hold over your heart that much stronger, and our minds will try to trick us, but there is no doubt about it, both jealousy and envy are heart issues, not mind issues. And as I mentioned, how extreme jealousy and envy often mask themselves as 100% justified, just as Saul's did, his entire life, he died like that. Uh, In the moment, it makes sense to us. And, And always when I'm preparing to share a sermon, a topic specifically, I am often convicted in the ways in which this topic impacts me and things that I need to correct in myself. And as I was writing... Something came to my mind that I haven't thought of, honestly, in probably over a year. I don't even know when it happened. It was so long ago. It was at our Columbia Heights Parish, the old one on Columbia Road. And I remember being there. We were in service, sitting in the front row. The band is playing. Everything's great. People are loving it. Everyone is focused, except me. And I can't focus because I am distracted slash very annoyed with what someone is wearing on stage. I know I'm saying that in this outfit. I get it. But (laughs) very annoyed. I cannot concentrate. I just could not believe that she would wear that. How dare she? What is she trying to prove up there? And it gets worse. I... Left that service, and sometime during that week, I don't think it was that Sunday, but sometimes during that week, I texted Pastor Jess, and I said, you know, I think we should have a uniform for the band. (laughs) I did that. And the thing is, I didn't care about what anyone else was wearing, just this one person. And I felt so morally justified. I, I was on it. I was like, no, this is not okay. Everyone wears black and white. This, you know, your clothes have to look like this. I lost it. And, I did, and then I, for, you know, I moved on to the next thing to be enraged about, but like I, <laughs> for a while, I was there and it, I didn't go back to that thought for a long time. And I texted this person yesterday to apologize for something she didn't even know I felt. And I said, hey, you know, this happened, I kind of freaked out and I need you to know that, you know, that was completely out of envy and I'm so sorry. You didn't know this happened, but I did this and it's not okay. And, you know, she was so grateful for it, and we talked then, and it made me realize, it actually made me sad, because what envy does is it puts an invisible barrier between us. And so, looking back on it, I feel like we could have been much closer during our time together at church, had I have been able to address what was really going on in my heart earlier. And that sucks. I mean, I'm glad that I did this, and I'm glad that I finally had this come-to-Jesus moment, but it took so long. I just didn't realize it, and I thought that I was the moral authority here, being like, nope, this isn't okay. Who cares? That's what my heart was after, because it touched something within me about my self-worth, and I needed to check that. Check your heart. Do the heart checks, everyone. You have to check with yourself and ask yourself, really ask yourself, is it easier for me to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice? Is it? Because we're called to do both, and if rejoicing with those who rejoice is difficult for you, you need to ask yourself why. When my friends or my family have good news to share, I want to be at the top of their list in who they're calling because I want to celebrate with them. I want to be just as excited about what's going on in their life as I am in mine. Check yourself about jealousy. About extreme jealousy starting to take a front seat in your relationships. Have you communicated your needs to your your vulnerabilities, to your partner, to the people who love you? Have you? Have you told them how you need to be loved? Have you told them what triggers you? Have you told them ways in which communication hurts you? If not, How are they supposed to know? We need to share these things. Because when we don't, we bottle them up inside, and then they become resentment over potentially nothing. Communication is how we control jealousy. And you watch, you watch as you celebrate others, you watch as you share, you watch your heart just continue to grow. It just gets bigger and bigger because you realize that there is enough for everyone. You realize that we actually serve the God who took a few boys, a boy's few fish and bread loaves and made them feed thousands. But not only did he do that, there was extra. Do you want to know how many extra baskets there were? Twelve. 12. One for each disciple who did not think there was going to be enough. And God puts it at your feet and says, look, I've got more. That's who we serve. And when you start to do these things, you start to realize that there is always more than enough. There is more space to love because we serve a limitless God. And we don't get there by abu- this abundance of thought by wishful thinking. We get there through exercising this. And there's this uh, other character within the story that I didn't tell you about. His name is Jonathan. And Jonathan's actually the hero of this story. He's Saul's son. Saul's son has every reason to hate David. David comes in young. He takes control of his father's heart. He takes control of Israel. And what does Jonathan do as soon as David arrives? He embraces him. And Jonathan was human. And we don't get to know what Jonathan's thoughts were Scripture doesn't tell us this, but I like to think that he had these heart checks with himself. I like to think that he was vulnerable with himself so that he could share these things with others and actually be healthy and ends up saving David's life. He completely changed the course of Scripture because of how he behaved, because he did something different than his father did. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that the cure for envy is delighting in the Lord. I'm not. Because the thing is, when we're in a Saul-like rage about jealousy or envy, you can't hear that. None of us can. We're not there yet. We need to take these very tangible steps in order to realize these things. These are things that anybody can do, Christian or not, in order to realize the perspective of what's actually going on. Leaning into jealousy and envy is courageous. In fact, it might be one of the most important things that we do as humans because it makes us vulnerable. It connects us to other people. It removes the barriers that we have put up there superficially. And then we can delight in the Lord and see how good he is. The cure for both jealousy and envy is the same. We lean in. Uh, Now, for those of us in the room who are also members of another church, the Church of Brene Brown, um, this may sound familiar, But Brene Brown has this this technique that she uses within her own personal relationships where when she's in a situation with someone she cares about and she's trying to decipher if her thoughts are actually what's going on, in order to verify it, she vocalizes and says, this is the story that I'm making up to myself and then shares what that story is to verify it with the person she's she's talking to. And uh, I would like to use that but shift the concept to focus more on the inherent love that God has for each of us. So not the perception of what the situation is, more based on the truth of who we are. So when issues of extreme jealousy or envy creep up, we can see if our actions or desired actions measure up to the story that we want to tell, measure up to the story of who we are. And if they don't, we move those actions aside and we keep going. So truly, this week, I ask you to have a serious conversation with yourself and ask, who have I rejoiced with recently? Who have I shared in celebration with recently? And ask yourself, how, how am I communicating my needs to others, to people who love me? How am I doing that? Am I vocalizing it? Do they know? And three, what story are you telling? What is your story? What is that piece that you're going to stick to? What will be your doctrine And I'll leave you today with the story that I want to tell, Uh, the story I want my actions to measure up with when the devils of extreme jealousy and envy start to take ownership of my heart. So the story that I am telling is that of an imperfect but beloved daughter of the Most High who knows in her core that despite what the world tries to tell her, she is delighted in. And regardless of the fact that the table looks so full, there is always more room for her. Because the one who has called her is faithful and he never loses sight of her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you. Uh, for just sharing and being able to be in a space where we talk about hard things. We thank you that your house isn't afraid of anything. I pray, Lord, that these conversations don't stop here. I pray that we continue to break down barriers between us. We continue to communicate so that ultimately we can figure out who you have created us to be in the purest state possible. We love you and we thank you. Amen.